This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. We've been uh, spending some time discussing. Uh, Lou Nordstrom's memoir of American Zen Pioneer. And necessarily that uh, puts our focus on his account of his enlightenment experience and uh, everything it did and didn't do for him. And much of the memoir is focused more on what it didn't do uh, in terms of healing an internal split, an internal sense of unreality, of not being seen. And how so much of practice was oriented to the cultivation of states of samadhi that temporarily allowed that sense of unreality to disappear into an absorption or non-separation with the moment, but did not really... Uh, ever heal the, uh, the inner division that was uh, torturing him. So one of the things we've tried to uh, describe is an, is an alternate view of practice and what it's aiming for and what it can do. And in some ways trying to describe a different kind of post-enlightenment practice. What is our practice intended to settle into? Or how would it manifest or utilize some of the kind of insight that uh, Lou achieved, but which remained very dissociated or compartmentalized. What would that look like? Uh, it wasn't so dissociated. Now, the traditional Soto response is that enlightenment is not something that is achieved so much as it's something that's continually enacted. But the 
twist of the paradox is that it's the sort of effect of an enlightenment experience in order to that allows you or enables you to feel that your practice is the enactment of enlightenment. We can say that the affective quality of our pre-enlightenment practice is precisely that it's stuck in a means to an end kind of uh, way of thinking and that we're largely stuck in a mode of we're not there yet. We could say that it's the characteristic of post-enlightenment practice, not just to have a sense of we've arrived and we're there, so much as even the experience of we're not there yet is part of being there. That rather than the privileging of a certain kind of state of samadhi or concentration as the embodiment of uh, being there, at least for a moment, what we're trying to point to is a sense that all those sittings that we were experiencing as our bad sittings, where we're stuck in pain or restlessness or wandering thoughts, are in a sense just as much an enactment of enlightenment as the sittings in which we are deep in samadhi. That there really is a kind of confidence, faith, realization that just this is always being enacted in our sitting. And this was Joko's constant way of pointing to the absolute in the midst of emotion or bodily tension. In a way, it's a kind of dissolving of the distinction between the problem and its solution. You could say that when we start out, the problem is very clear and the solution, while clear is something distant in our and in our imagination. And we conceive of the problem and the solution as a kind of fundamental dichotomy. And is in a sense our basic koan. 
koans are always this kind of presentation of a divided self, a divided world. Dogs and Buddha nature. Being a dog is definitely a problem. Being a Buddha nature, now that's the solution. How do we close the gap? And what does closing the gap look like? One of the ways Joko talked about closing the gap was the abandonment of hope. That was a kind of, what does it mean to take away the carrot at the end of the stick that you think you're always chasing? What if there's no separate carrot? I remember some time encountering the um, work of the French religious uh, philosopher uh, Simone Weil. If my pronunciation is confusing you, it's spelled W-E-I-L. She died during the uh, Second World War. She was a Jewish convert to Catholicism. And when she came to mind the other day, I thought, I remembered hearing a Simone Weil joke to the effect that she liked everything about Christianity except the resurrection. So I tried to look that up, and it turns out it's not a joke at all. There's a, uh, I found a quote where she's writing to one of Catholic spiritual advisors saying that uh, If the story of the gospel ended on Good Friday with the crucifixion, uh, she would it would be much better for her faith that she always thought of the resurrection as this kind of uh, trying to cheat to get have a kind of get out of jail card free, somehow erasing the effect of uh, suffering and death with this promise of an alternative. That's the kind, in a way, of thinking that sometimes Joko gets associated with, the um, completely snatch away any hope of resurrection, of enlightenment, of anything, outside just having this ex this experience Simon uh, Ve saw 
God not as an antidote to our suffering, but suffering as sort of the, the closest we get to an experience of God. I may uh, not be doing her justice because I find her a very difficult and problematic figure. But as I understand it, part, her idea was in a way that God voluntarily absences himself from the world as a way to make space for man. And that the space that God empties himself out of is the space in which self emerges. It's the absence of God that is the self. And the self in the absence of God necessarily suffers and is afflicted. But in a strange way, The way we best know God is through his absence, through the pain we feel in his absence and the pain we feel in our suffering. If I have that right, it's really no fun. I don't think I want to go there with her. Uh, but... It does give a model of this collapse between the problem and the solution. The very thing, the suffering we think we need to relieve, she turns around and makes, makes it, in fact, the goal we're moving towards itself. I had the thought, when we think about enlightenment experiences and what they do or how they manifest, that we're actually presented with um, sort of two very different kinds of uh, experience and their consequences in the literature. Uh, and they might correspond in some way to the experience on the one hand that all is one versus the experience that all is empty. You have an experience of all is one if one version of that may be the oneness with immediacy of what's right in front of you and what you're doing. And that tends to be much more the kind of oneness that's valorized in the ritualization of practice and Soto Buddhism. And, you know, you can sort of, it's the 
It's the oneness of exquisite attention to detail, meticulousness. This can devolve into preciousness. The other kind of uh, all is one that we sometimes encounter more today we, we takes the form of engaged Buddhism, the sense we're not just one with the teacup, but we're one with suffer the suffering of humanity. And that's the kind of oneness that says, hurry, we have to put out the fire. And there's always a fire. The world is always burning. There's always suffering. And so that kind of oneness is a, is a mobilization to action. That's a very modern version of uh, oneness. Uh, I think Glassman tried to enact some of that in his ideas of work practice or engaged Buddhism or street retreats and things like that. Although most of what that did was geared to altering the consciousness of uh, the people on the retreat rather than doing a lot of social engagement. He tried to do that with the, the bakery and employ homeless people. But by and large, we still are in a position where The focus is on our experiencing uh, a connection with the suffering of others, not uh, becoming truly socially engaged as a response to it. Now, the, the fact is there's also a whole other kind of uh, experience of enlightenment in this plugs much more into the um, Chinese and Taoist side of Zen that sees the emptiness of everything. And to see the emptiness of everything is to sort of extinguish the distinctions between good and bad. Everything's just the way it is. And there is a kind of underlying delight in that. That's sort of the strange uh, psychological reality of emptiness. We don't experience it as a uh, depressing void, or at least I don't have that experience. Rather, it's kind of much more the dropping away of all our judgmental baggage. And another kind of uh, simple delight in things as they are. Now, again, that can devolve into preciousness. That certainly seems to be an uh, occupational hazard. Uh, but I think sort of affectively, it can give rise to a um, 
an expression of, uh, shall we say, lighten the fuck up. As opposed to hurry up the house is on fire. It's interesting that sort of in the, the, the literature of Zen, we've we have many more people that uh, seem to exemplify the light and upside. Perhaps because uh, for much of its existence in China and Japan, uh, Zen existed in cultures where it simply felt that there was very little potential agency for affecting things like the governments and society and the economy and that the religious practice was much more a form of dropping out of that world and finding an alternative. And in that alternative, you you hear things like uh, in the spring, I followed the fragrance of the flowers and in the autumn I returned following the falling leaves. Not much urgency in that kind of uh, picture of enlightenment. Now with both dichotomies, I guess uh, it is, is again our practice to try to dissolve them, to find some either middle or some synthesis between these two. But in terms of our day-to-day practice, We do want to say that it does seem to be, begin and be sustained by the this dissolving of the difference between good and bad sittings, collapsing of both into just sitting in a way that sitting becomes this part of our day, our part of our life, where we just show up to life as it is. We show up to that hour's experience, which may go well, may go badly, by our ordinary way of thinking things. But we have this discipline of showing up regardless or uh, without, without thought of, is it going well or badly? I think that may be the most fundamental way in which we get our practice unstuck from goal-oriented thinking. And then when we get up after the sound of the bell, we have to see where our where that takes us. Does that non-distinction lead to 
heading to Grand Central Station to join protests for ceasefires? Or will it be a way in which we head down to the art gallery and enjoy the moment, a moment of, uh, of beauty in a burning world? With luck, we find a way to uh, do some of both. <laughs>